Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for those experiencing a mental health crisis. Everybody, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. I am Travis Atkinson, your host, helping you to get hip to behavioral health crisis services. I want to start the podcast by extending my sincere gratitude and thanks to those of you who are listening. Maybe this is your first episode, and I welcome you if that is the case. And for those of you who have been listening since the beginning, I appreciate you. I don't know where you're listening. Maybe it's walking the dog or doing the dishes or in the car on a bus. It's going to start to become like a Dr. Seuss rhyme or something. I don't want to do that. I will save that for a future cast. But thank you. I'm grateful for all of you who have reached out on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn and shared your thoughts about the podcast. And in addition to people working in crisis services or behavioral health services, I've also received a lot of feedback from outside of the industry. So thank you for the emails and calls and texts from people and for the conversations that some of these episodes have started. I'm very grateful for that as well. Before I get to the interview, I have a few announcements. The first is... In a few weeks, I will be releasing a few special podcasts, which are recordings from the 2019 Crisis Residential Conference, which took place in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the first podcast will be a panel discussion called But It's Legal, a discussion on tobacco, marijuana, and prescription drugs. I'm excited to share this cast with you because it features national experts talking about their experiences with substances like this in their own crisis programs. And you don't have to do anything different to get access to those episodes. They will be a part of this podcast. So just look for those in the coming weeks. And then also I have a couple conference announcements to share with you. The first is that the American Association of Suicidology, or AAS, annual conference is taking place October 22nd to the 25th in Portland, Oregon. And April 22nd includes a crisis conference track focusing on crisis residential, mobile crisis, and crisis call center teams. Also, the 2020 Crisis Residential Association has announced its annual conference, which is taking place October 13th through the 15th in Louisville, Kentucky. And lastly, CrisisCon, which is the NASCOD and Contact USA Crisis Center Conference, takes place October 21st to the 23rd in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about those conferences, visit suicidology.org, crisisresidentialnetwork.com, or crisiscon.org. And now, on to the episode. In this episode, I interview Amelia Leto. Amelia is a crisis call center expert, a suicide prevention guru, advocate, 
and social media influencer. Amelia has worked in mental health and suicide prevention for over 10 years. She serves on the board of Kevin's Song, a charitable organization dedicated to generating public awareness about the causes, impact, and prevention measures of suicide. And she has previously served on the board of the American Association of Suicidology and Suck It Suicide. I talk with Amelia about her work in crisis call centers, her personal story of losing her best friend to suicide when she was only 13 years old, the influences of mentors like Dr. Bill Schmitz, and her involvement in organizations like AAS, NASGOD, Kevin's Song, and Six Feet Over. Here is episode four of the Crisis Podcast, Amelia Leto. Amelia Leto, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. You have invited me into your circle of suicide prevention peeps and crisis services, and I've just uh, I've loved it. And so I want to talk about some of that a little bit. But my first question for you is, what do you do and why do you do it? So I think that's an interesting question because I do many things. And for the most part, I am a suicide prevention advocate and um, mental health activist. And I've really narrowed in on kind of this interesting space of working in crisis services, community education, and consultation on kind of the mental health social media piece of things because that is a growing area and an area that mental health in particular needs to improve upon because that's where people are at right now. So what first drew you into doing this kind of work? Dr. Bill Foreman. Dr. Bill Foreman. Schmitz? Dr. Bill Schmitz. I'm blending April Foreman and Bill Schmitz into <laughs> one like person. Like his head and like her dresses. <laughs> that would be quite the superpower. Now um, we're talking. Yeah, Dr. Bill Schmitz actually, we became friends on Facebook and he had told me about the SPSM Sunday night chats and I, that I needed to get onto Twitter. And that this was where people were having these larger conversations of what was happening in suicide prevention and the mental health space. And so I joined the, the Twitter chats, I think six years ago now, and I would spend Sunday nights talking to my colleagues and who are now some of my closest friends and learning from some of the greatest minds because they would bring in experts and those with lived experience or those that are kind of researchers or academics or clinicians in the field. And we would have these exciting conversations that were really personable and really informative. And I knew that this was going to take me into a, a realm that I hadn't been experiencing. And because I had worked in crisis center space and on a local level, providing direct services, face-to-face -face with individuals in crisis um, directly after a traumatic event, and then providing um, supervision and direct services over the phone, chat, and text. So I was working directly with individuals, but I wanted to level up. And that's why I gravitated towards SPSM, and I really do thank them for bringing me into the circle of trust um, <laughs> and suicide prevention advocates and experts. And I thank them because it gave me a place and it gave me a platform to build further access and information and, and get it out to the people that needed it the most because mental health doesn't have a great 
marketing and branding scheme because there's been a lot of there's there's a lot of flubs there's a lot of missteps um, and not a lot of funding behind it so the long-winded answer thank you no it's it actually <laughs> it was it was regular winded sometimes I think about how social media has advanced uh, these opportunities to have these conversations. And I, I think of this, I think it's a pr- like a progressive commercial where all these old ladies are like standing around and they have their own version of Facebook. And it's literally like picture frames on a wall of people's faces that they know, you know, and yeah. they're like, I met Jimmy. And I like that play on alternative social connection because 50 years ago, I mean, this would need to be uh, a phone call everyone would have to drive to a central location and you might only talk to each other but once a year or if you're on a collaborative project and so it just seems like this has really uh opened up a lot of the conversation around suicide prevention and around crisis services as dr uh, schmitz exposed you to spsm what was that experience like when you maybe found other people that were either as passionate as you were as informed as you were about the issues or that that gave you a platform to interact with people in a in a very dynamic way it was like the light turned on right kind of that serendipitous moment of i'm in the right place at the right time and i knew that they were doing something special and they knew that they were doing something special that hadn't been brought to the this this space before suicide prevention is i would say it's it affects so many people, and yet the expertise and those that are that are speaking out and sharing their stories are kind of siloed, is, is, is what I, I hear and what I've experienced myself. So finding a group of people that thought like me, that challenged me in ways that I hadn't considered, and that brought new ideas was a really exciting place to be. And, you know, sitting on my couch on Sunday nights watching television with my husband, my husband's like, you're on that chat again, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I am. I'm talking to my friends. And I met everybody, most of most of the participants in 2014 in California at the American Association of Suicidology Conference. So my friends from the computer became real people. And I, you know, I've had that experience before. I've been involved in, you know, various online forums and groups and I shared a story yesterday in a presentation about how I got involved with the G-diapers community and was a big fan of this hybrid cloth diaper. And I found this <laughs> group of moms that were, you know, diapering their babies. Yes. Um, but it brought friendships that have lasted, you know, a lifetime. And I knew that real relationships are that face-to-face that we're having and that you can maintain relationships and learn and grow and work on projects from, you know, across the country. And I had been so, you know, siloed myself doing this work. I mean, I worked at a center where we had great camaraderie and just the work is good, generally. I mean, it's hard and heartbreaking work, but it's really good work because you never know when you're gonna find yourself in crisis. And I found myself in crisis when I was 13 years old and my best friend died by suicide. And our family was brought together but also splintered because of that loss and that trauma that came with it and that hardship. So finding those communities of support and those communities of friendship and guidance and mentorship meant so much to me coming into this. There's never a 
good age to experience like that kind of trauma or loss, but 13 just feels like really young to take on um, just something that's even hard for adults that have been through um, uh, difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of touched on how it affected your family, but can you can you tell us how that changed or influenced the course of your life and the work that you chose to do and the way that you are advocating now? I think it really was a catalyst. Uh, we were very close. We grew up together. You know, my parents introduced her parents, and we were we were in each other's lives throughout our childhood. And I knew that she struggled. I knew that her family was doing their best, what they knew to do to to get her the support that she needed, and getting her the best course of care that was available. And it it wasn't enough to to save her from herself Hmm. uh, from suicide and I found out when I was having a Halloween party (laughs) in my eighth grade year of middle school and didn't know what had happened but knew that something had happened to her and that everybody needed to go somewhere else and looking at my friends faces I can still see those those young faces just not comprehending, but knowing something awful has has taken place. And my sister ran around the house frantically cleaning, which she never did. She was a slob. And I knew that, that there was something more. So I called their house, and her uncle told me what had happened. And my mom had gone to the hospital to help her parents. And... I still had, you know, the Halloween cupcakes at my house. I still had, you know, the pops and, you know, the the chips and the things. And I was like, well, we need to go over there. And I took everything and I dropped it off to my friend's house who took everybody over. And we went to the house. And the memory I have is just living there for the next couple of weeks of just being in and out, um, supporting the family. It was on the the tail end of a number of suicides in her school district. And there was a lot of media attention around it. And that was traumatic in itself on top of losing somebody that you love so much. And there was a lot of chaos in the moment. And yet my family, my mom in particular, was kind of holding us steady as much as she could. She really was the pillar that helped us get through and really got me the support that I needed in the the days and months and years that followed that. And this was decades ago that yeah. this happened and it, and the memories are still clear and it's They're so clear. I remember that kind of that outer body experience of like watching your life from the outside in and just kind of disassociating, I mean, honestly, of kind of walking through the day to day that that followed. I'm amazed at the way that people who have been affected by mental illness or by suicide uh, demonstrate resiliency and resolve in how they choose to live the rest of their life. Because Viktor Frankl talks about this, where where he says there's a a space between the stimulus and the response and and its choice and it, it it's everything really mm-hmm. because some people could choose to live a very detached life with with anger and and frustration and spite or, or, or smite or whatever the word is but and they might be justified to feel some of that way but what i notice in 
in this industry and in, in crisis services and behavioral health is that a lot of people are channeling pain and suffering into doing something good. Um, talk to me about how you've noticed that maybe in your peers or like why like we don't we don't have to and yet we um we somehow maintain hope amidst these dark spaces i think that's one of the most humbling experiences of of doing the work that i've done because i've worked on the local i've worked on the state and i've worked on the national level and seeing people kind of rise up from from the ashes of their lives right like these moments that we know happen to other people but we're never quite prepared when it happens to us and i think the people that do gravitate towards this work in particular crisis work and and suicide prevention work working with suicide loss survivors which i i've i'm so grateful i've done for over 10 years now seeing people come up from their worst moments it gives us a sense of purpose uh, and gives people a sense of hope. And I think hope and purpose are, are such powerful tools for human beings because so much is kind of the existential of what am I doing here and what, why am I here and what, a, what am I giving back to others? And this work, you don't always see it, but you feel it. And I, I've always kind of hung to that. It's not what somebody said it's not what somebody did but it's how you how they made you feel and doing this work you have this very vulnerable intimate exchange with another person especially on suicide prevention hotline or you know the the chat and text services that that we provide you're having this intimate exchange with another person who may not have ever shared their story before with somebody else but you're able to offer that that place of safety and empathy that maybe they've never experienced and let them know that they're heard, that they're validated and that they can get through the next day and the next day and the next day. I, you know, I said that crisis, you can never really anticipate it, but you want to know that somebody's there when you need it. And that's what I, I'm so proud to be involved in this circle and be able to provide a space where people can reach out and connect to others. Cause I think connections are undervalued um, in the day-to-day when we all get so busy with our our lives Mm -hmm. we forget what's happening so the people that i've found that gravitate towards this have all or generally all experienced it in some way or another whether it's for themselves that they've experienced suicidal you know uh, the range of suicidal you know experiences or loss in their own lives or mental health concerns of another person they they come with that in their back pocket for the good and bad of it. So, you know, sometimes there's the bad experience of, well, this is what happened to my family and this is what's going to happen for you. You know, we find that in the field, but generally you find a lot of people with hope and compassion for others and, and providing a, um, a place of, of guidance and support. And I imagine that can feel countercultural at times. It can, you never stop learning. And I hope nobody ever stops learning in any of these spaces. But I think this is in particular because there's always going to be something new and something that's like, wait, I, how do I, how do I navigate this piece of, of the person's story or navigate this experience in my own life while supporting others? I want to dive in for a minute into your work in uh, crisis call centers and, and chat and text. Yeah. Help me to understand what it's like to be 
answering the lines in a, in a crisis call center or doing uh, you know chat and text uh, when all you have is maybe your your training and and your skills and you don't have you know the 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 face to face you don't have them seeing you and could you walk me through what it's like to work in that environment um, you know in the in the day to day but then also over time. So I've done this work for over a decade now, and it really was my foray into the mental health space and the suicide-ology space. I came in as a volunteer, and there's a mixed there's a mixed bag of, of crisis services and how they provide services. You know, there's some centers that have all, you know, master's level clinicians. There's some centers that have a mix of both. There's some that are predominantly volunteer run, and ours was a mix of both. So we had you know, the support of trained, licensed professionals, and some with, you know, just that long-term experience of doing this work. My center that I had worked at, we went through a 90-hour training and learned all of those bits and pieces and practiced those skills and were challenged by our trainer, my mentor, Don, in ways that I needed at the time. Coming into this work was following the death of my mother, and I had fallen into a deep depression following her loss, so I knew I needed to get out of myself to give back. And this was, you know, 10 years after my best friend had died, and it all kind of came together, you know, those serendipitous moments. I really do see that. I've, I've found that a lot throughout my career, that this is, I'm on the right path, um, looking for those pieces for myself. And coming into the work, it was incredible. Like I knew that it was, I knew it was going to be powerful and impactful, but I didn't know that this was going to be my career choice. And six months in, I, I got hired on and I've just, I leveled up from that volunteer shift on Friday nights. And I would come into this small, you know, this bedroom size, <laughs> you know, call center space with, you know, the, the desks all lined up and phones at the ready, you know, supervisor in the corner. And are you ready to take your first call? And I took that first call and I made that connection. I was able to, you know, share a resource with the person. And I think I talked to that person several more times and I still wonder what happened to them. And the stories that they had shared with me, I will always treasure. I've talked to thousands of people and I don't remember everybody, but I remember, you know, those, those stories that really struck my heart and struck theirs in that exchange. So being able to be a support and a resource for somebody in that moment of pain, it served what I needed. And I knew that they needed it in the moment as well. And you're not going to connect with everybody, right? That's just human nature. We're going to have those missteps. We're not going to, you know, build rapport that we needed to, but we can let them know that somebody is there, that if they are in that headspace again for themselves, that they can reach out and connect with somebody else. And if you're not going to connect with me, make the next call. Like, keep on, keep on finding what works for you. And I think that's the really hard knot that happens in the stomach when you don't make that connection or you lose that call. I remember having a call one time where I was one of the only ones in the center at the time. It was kind of a low volume day and the fire alarm was going off. 
and I have this fire alarm going off and you know the call is you know on a desktop phone and I couldn't walk outside and I'm just you know I'm staying with this person and I'm, I'm walking them through you know I got a fire alarm going on I'm pretty sure it's fake but I'm gonna stay with you as long as possible because they were you know they were they, they were in a lot of pain I think they were they were actively suicidal and they they stayed with me throughout the, the fire alarm <laughs> and I think we made a safe a safe plan in that moment but you don't always have those moments you know you you have a lot of losses for as many wins as you have you have a lot of losses and I think the optimism is what has helped me get through that there are a lot of gaps in these in these systems and there's a lot of barriers to care but I know there are good people in this work and if one resource doesn't work for you I'll help you find another one Early on in my behavioral health career, uh, we I had to take notes as a case manager, and there's all different kinds of formats that you can take them in. You know, there's SOAP, and the one that I remember was DIR, mm-hmm. and it was Deficit Intervention Result. I think a lot of uh, people in helping professions gravitate towards uh, some kind of closure or ending to the work that they're doing. I think part of it is probably because we've been accultured by like Disney storybook endings you know happily ever after which like by the way like no Disney stories talk to you about your 30s and beyond but that's that's for another podcast <laughs> what are we doing I, I maybe Disney to, Plus will develop yeah, that oh, Disney, series yes that would be great I would I would uh, where continue is, my subscription for where that. is Beauty and the Beast now but I bring that up because uh, I imagine it takes a certain amount of faith and hope as a as someone who works on the lines to, to faith in your in your skills and like what you've learned and and your intent to be helpful and then hope that they're going to find what they need when when you have these people that left an impression on you that that don't uh you don't get the resolution of of why they called can you just talk to me about how you're able to sit in that space and it's not this isn't just one caller that didn't give you resolution it's probably 90 or more percent whoever doesn't yeah. you know follow up with a, a thank you card or something some people can't do that how do you how do you sit in that space uh dr schmitz foreman <laughs> i'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm sticking with it guys okay. uh dr schmitz foreman no uh dr abel foreman who uh is a great colleague a great radical, you know, challenging leader in this in this work introduced me to the idea or notion of radical acceptance. And I think I had come in contact with it at one point or another, but I think it was one of those times where I was really ready to hear it. And the radical acceptance of I will not know the end result of this call, this contact, this experience with this individual. And allowing others to have that autonomy. There's a lot of dispute of initiating active rescues um, in this work. And are we putting people potentially at more harm than good if they are, if they qualify as actively suicidal or, you know, uh, acutely at risk of, of harm? Are we doing more harm than good? And I think those are the ones that challenge me the most of, am I making the right call? Do I need to make the right call? Are my policies and procedures in place that allow me to to hold off and, and push this conversation further to see if we can come to a, a safe, you know, a safe plan or, a, you know, a safety for now? Because I'm a I'm a living works assist trained kid that really um, 
leans back on my trainings and, and the information I've taken in. What's assist? Tell us what that, like how that, you just kind of mentioned how that informs your yeah. approach. Uh, Living Works Assist is applied suicide intervention skills training. I went through that training over a decade ago. Uh, Dr. Bart Andrews was one of my trainers, along with Tim Jansen and a couple others. And they introduced this idea that you can sit in this space with individuals that are at risk for suicide and help them empower themselves to find their their results right so it really lined up with kind of crisis intervention and meeting the t- meeting the the person where they're at and letting them come up and formulate what's going to keep them safe for now suicide is a continuum i think i think generally people have an idea that you know a person is suicidal so they're they're at risk for for dying and there's people that walk around every day that walk among us that have regular thoughts of suicide or maybe they don't frame it that way but they are just i could just disappear or i don't want to be here right now and that can look different for for every different person so so assist helped me form the idea that it's okay to wait and it's okay to wait for another person to to share their story and that their story is valuable because as much as we have in common there's so many differences and the experiences that we come from i mean you know coming from a family of four daughters we each have a different experience of our childhood you know my older sisters knew my parents as a married couple and my sis- my younger sister and i knew our parents as divorced like that's a very different household to grow up in and so kind of relating that to the suicide space, people experience suicide very differently. They can have an active plan, but no intent to put it forward, right? Or they just need to talk out, I'm having a really awful day, and I could just die right now. I don't have a plan, but I just need to talk about it. And assist really helped me formulate that and feel safe in, in allowing others to talk it through. So I'm I'm often impressed or amazed by how people spend their time outside of their work. Mm-hmm. I think that there's there's a lot to be learned from people based on how you look at what they do between 5 p.m. and 8 a.m. the next day or how they spend their weekends or their their free time or maybe even their vacations. Yeah. You're working in this field. I imagine you could just, you know, hang your hat on the the hook at the end of the day or the week and say like you know, I did, I did my work. I'm helping my community. I'm helping my, uh, you know, my greater state or country, but you don't do that. And you're involved in some of these organizations. And I want to talk about that a little bit, uh, maybe either how you got involved or how you've been involved since you, since you joined. The first one is the American Association of Suicidology or AAS. And I think that's one of the ways that you and I connected a few years ago, but tell us about how you got involved in that and, and what you, you know, what that experience has been like for you. So my best friend, um, who, who, who died by suicide, um, her sister was working at the local crisis center that I, I was at, that I was brought into. She had told me about it. She told me about the training, how this might be a really good option for me, and really um, helped embrace me and bring me into this, this space. And one of her 
mentors, one of the researchers that he she gravitated towards was Dr. Frank Campbell, who is a, a former president of the American Association of Suicidology. He helped found the LOSS team, local outreach for suicide survivors, where they go out into the community and are on the scene of a suicide to help support the family, the friends, the loved ones that are kind of walking through this space with the the police officers doing their work and the first responders doing their work. And that was my original introduction. You know, Dr. Frank Campbell has this research. He's working with the American Association of Suicidology. And this is where, you know, I want to go. And she, she was doing a lot of research looking into bringing loss into the community. And it was really exciting, you know, being there for people in their darkest moments because it's it can be a really I mean it's traumatic loss but it's a traumatic experience because first responders have to handle it a certain way they have to handle it as you know a a homicide investigation and rule out all of those other pieces and you know rule it a suicide and being you know the family just kind of sitting around or unable to go into their home or you know not sure what they can or cannot do on the scene it helped provide them a safe space. So I think what Dr. Campbell developed was incredible. And admiring what my cousin was doing showed me that I could seek out more and I could seek out more information and that I needed to seek out more information because, you know, this 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 local space, this bit of information that I had, there was so much more to learn. So that was my original introduction to the American Association of Suicidology. Uh, our crisis center that I worked at was accredited by them, and we would go through the accreditation process. I became a member, and Dr. Bill Schmitz Foreman. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> Dr. Bill Schmitz, uh, who loves his technology, um, had reached out to me and said, hey, we have an opening in the crisis centers division. Would you be interested in and throwing your hat in the ring of, you know, getting more involved. Because I was showing up at the conferences, I was, you know, becoming an active member, I was advocating for crisis services because I think crisis services are such a, again, a valuable piece, but they're overlooked uh, a lot of the times because, you know, the, the big medical health centers are at the forefront that people see, right? They got, they got a, a little bit of more money coming in. The revenue streams are, are different with the crisis services and, and, and the big mental health um, medical-based models. Suicide prevention isn't sexy. And it is not a sexy sell. No, yeah. It is not. I try to make it sexy when I do presentations. I think you do a nice job. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I think you do. Uh, you know, but add a little levity. Maybe not <laughs> sexiness, but, you know, levity to some hard conversations. Oh, well, it's kind of the approach I took in high school. It's like, if you can't yeah. be good looking, be funny. You know, that's kind of... <laughs> It served you well. <laughs> yeah, it keeps continues to. <laughs> Hashtag defense mechanism. <laughs> Hashtag he has three kids. <laughs> um, okay, so you were involved as the, is it the division chair for AAS? Yeah, I became the division chair, it'll be four years ago now. And I had the benefit of coming from the crisis center space and, and working with the National Association of Crisis Centers Directors in Contact USA, and they, they were very heavily concentrated on, on crisis center work and crisis services work. So I had these different connections, had gone to their conferences. I think it is known as Crisis Con now. Yeah, which are 
I just want to sidebar on that, are just amazing people. They are you know? amazing like, people. Crisis yeah. Center people are such good people. Yes. I get to go to a lot of different conferences and just like the intimacy mm-hmm. that they bring and the authenticity and again, the inclusivity yeah. of the people that attend. It's just, it's amazing. It's like a little family. Yeah. And I'm blown away by that conference. I think it's it's amazing. It is. It is. Yeah. So I, I was able to, to attend a few of those conferences and I took every opportunity. You know, I did not come the traditional school route of things. I really built myself up from volunteer into a respected um, participant or expert in this work now. But I just sought out every opportunity that I could. Hey, can I attend this or can I go to this training? Sign me up for this. Getting involved, getting my foot in the door, showing up, doing the work, making the connections and networking with other individuals. And so I, you know, was involved in this crisis services space. The American Association of Suicidology has a crisis centers, which is now services division, and that they didn't feel as represented as they needed to be because they were and are the front lines for many people in suicidal crisis. So I stepped into that role and I had the support of the the past chair, Pat Morris, who walked me through kind of, this is what you're going to look like in the first year. This is what's going to look like in the second year. And this is what it's going to look like in the third year, kind of getting your foot, you know, grounded, learning what's happening, what, what's, what's going on in, in your division, you know, kind of formulating your goals and your, your plans, and then kind of working to hand it off. And that really was the trajectory of my my role uh, as the crisis center's division chair for the, for AAS. And I was able to bring together a crisis center's pre-conference that hadn't, they hadn't seen before. I was able to bring a few fine gentlemen that stepped up to be <laughs> um, the crisis center's committee co-chairs, uh, Andrew and, and, and yourself, Travis. Oh, me. Yeah. 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 You showed up and you, and you helped formulate you know, kind of the goals and objectives and really help solidify that that the crisis services are here to stay and they're here to play a role in this work. And I think that has really shined with with what's happening now and kind of moving forward with um, Becky Stoll is now the, the chair in that position and, and that you're doing some exciting things at AAS that I couldn't have imagined, you know, three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. So you kind of talked about some of the things that you're proud of or that you're excited about. What would you say to somebody who works in any realm of crisis services, whether it's call center, mobile crisis, crisis residential, 23-hour, about the value that being involved in a group like AAS brings? I think it's, it's validating to know that others are working in this space, that others are facing some of the same challenges and celebrating some of the same wins. Hmm. Connecting with others that have the passion and interest that you do is one of the greatest joys that I've experienced. And I think that's what other people are drawn to. There's a lot of adversity. There are a lot of you know, bureaucratic red tape for some of this work and getting people connected in the way that they deserve and need to, getting the funds brought in to support the good work that's happening. So making those connections can heighten the voice of what was once kind of 
people kind of feeling like they were talking into the wind or, you know, mm-hmm. talking to themselves of this needs to happen. And I've been able to connect with so many different people that are coming from so many different areas, whether it's, you know, the, the professionals that have been in this work for the last 40 years or the, the, the noobs that are coming out with new ideas from, from school or from, you know, our volunteer classes or those with lived experience who are directly impacted by the choices that are being made at the organizations that are working to serve them, but are they serving them? So challenging them in different ways that they need to level up. There's a lot of uh, research that's coming out that's talking about loneliness and the impact that it has on health and on, on suicide rates, and that connection can often be an antidote to that. And what I'm hearing you say is that connection is even important with the behavioral health workforce, yeah. that people need to feel like they're not alone, that they can mm-hmm. go on another day, another year. Yeah. Uh, and we need good people in this industry. And if you feel alone, it, it won't take long before you start to lose yeah. hope. But if you find other people that are, are feeling that or can be encouraging or help you to, to create a, sh- a shortcut or an improvement in a system that was otherwise maddening to you, it might, yeah. it might keep you going. Yeah, I mean, we're working in that day-to-day, and it, this isn't a normal workspace, you know. It's, it's very hard to turn it off once you, once you leave, because whether you're working, you know, on the, the, the call lines or, you know, in those face-to-face emergency-type care services or, or in residential care, that, that face-to-face contact, you know, you have that, that physical and physiological reaction to that heightened kind of cortisol and, and adrenaline that happens to match the reaction that you need to have. And yet you have to have this kind of calm, cool, soothing and kind of bury some of those heightened emotions down. So having space to be able to talk about that and connect with others, you know, being able to connect with your colleagues in that same workspace is so valuable. There's a scene in the green mile. Yeah. Great movie. Isn't that great movie? I know that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you already know. Okay, well, next uh, topic here. Uh, there's a scene in The Green Mile where the character who has these superhuman powers to heal people, mm. to almost like bring people back from death, he yeah. has this process where he kind of ingests or inhales the venom, the the death, the bad spirits from the person that he's trying to heal. And then he has to go out into a field and he has to blow them all out. And they come out in like thousands of little flies you know Mm -hmm. this dark dark uh, cloud of flies and i think that crisis workers have to do that like they have to Mm -hmm. have a a place where they can just let let it down like relax and Mm -hmm. it's not always amongst your coworkers or your your partner um your spouse Uh, sometimes it's just to be yourself around people that get it where like you don't have to explain what you do and like why it's hard that you're around a bunch of other people where it's it's just understood Mm -hmm. i think that's beautiful i think that's like one of the greatest things that humans do is they congregate around things that are important to them yeah i want to shift to another uh cause that you are involved in and that's uh kevin's song yes tell me about what kevin's song is and and why you're involved in that yeah, Kevin Song is a suicide prevention organization based in uh, Metro Detroit, and they came about after losing their son, Kevin, Urso to suicide. His parents, uh, Gail and John, 
are some of the most compassionate, caring, knowledgeable individuals that I've come in contact with this work. And they both come from outside of this field. You know, John is a lawyer by trade. His Gail is an interior designer, and she has quite a bit of experience herself um, in the educational and, and, and psychological fields by training. And they knew that something was missing in their community. And so they worked to fill the gap. You know, again, with those those connections, I think that's been the theme for me lately of just finding those connections. So they built Kevin's song to honor their son, to give them a sense of purpose and, and hope and offer educational opportunities and support services uh, to those directly in their community and beyond. I mean, this, the, the conference is happening um, now in, in, in Plymouth, Michigan for the fourth year, and it's doubled in attendance. So that's a pretty exciting feat. I'm on their advisory committee, and I joined up with them after they were making connections in, in, in the Metro Detroit area. They came to the crisis center that I was working at, and my supervisor at the time, Lisa Turbyville, was like, you need to meet Gail and John Urso. They're, they're doing some exciting stuff, and I think they would be wonderful, and you're working with AAS, and I think going to AAS would be a, a great conference for them, and they, they knew that they wanted to do something in that regard of bringing education to those that are serving on the ground here. They came to AAS, and, and we formed a, a really great friendship. I've joined their advisory council since then, and I've helped with building up their social media and kind of letting them guide what they want, what kind of content they're looking for, whether it's in regards to, you know, suicide prevention, suicide intervention, crisis intervention, the mental health and, and substance use that kind of all kind of fall into this trauma-informed care and, and getting education out and information. Last year, I was able to help them form their, their suicide loss support group. And my sister Amanda has helped them form their attempt survivor support group. And they're even, they're growing it out even further, trying to, to build kind of bringing communities and coalitions together to advocate at the state level of the services that are needed with, with a program called With One Voice. So they're doing some exciting things and making these connections that hadn't been made before because we're all busy doing this frontline work. Mm-hmm. Yet, there is a need to kind of have these larger conversations. I've noticed some of that change with the AAS conference as well, Mm -hmm. where the messaging is starting to be not just about suicidology, but also about building a life worth living. And I think that's very important because my opinion is that uh, suicide prevention at its worst is interesting. And, you know, we say, wow, wow, look at humans, look at their ability to destroy themselves or be their own demise. And gosh, we need more research. We need more of these things. But it's more than that. It's more than just the absence of self-harm thoughts or uh, suicidal thoughts, but it's also the presence of good things in your life. And that's an important consideration that we don't just wait until things are so bad that people want to end their life, but Mm -hmm. that we are helping people find reasons to live and to uh, just kind of to see that out to its 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 fruition, mm-hmm. you know, past just okay, we got you out of this crisis, but like, how do we um, how do we engender that, you know, in the, into that life worth living? 
And I think that's the the complexity that comes in with suicide, that there's a lot of research that supports, you know, this, this, the mental illness and substance use. And yet the research is not where it needs to be to have a full grasp of, of the trauma and the, the social biases and the, the, and the social barriers that people face in their day to day. If people can't find, you know, a roof to, to keep them safe from, you know, a cold Michigan winter, how are we going to expect them to wake up in the morning and, you know, to, to serve me coffee? You know, <laughs> who wants to serve coffee when they're just worried about survival and really taking a look at that and, and what that means and, and the damage that has been done in a number of communities and a number of cultural communities and really addressing that and challenging our own beliefs and, 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 and systems of care of how they've been built um, from the ground up because there was a lot of hard work that had been done, but we're in a place where we can start questioning things. And I don't think that has to be divisive and I don't think that has to be um, abrupt and you're doing wrong, but I think it, it takes reverence and a step back to say, am I serving the community that I want to be serving? And am I serving them to the best way in the best way that I can? And are we keeping people safe from themselves or are we keeping people, are we keeping ourselves safe from liability? And I think that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about how this work doesn't often bring us the resolution that we want it to, Um, that it's not cut and dry, it's not always linear, that deficit intervention result, that even when you do it well, it's it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And it's, you have to either trust that you're doing a good job, regardless of of, um, so many negative or -hmm. or distressing uh, stimuli, or you have to have ways to, to get validated in, in other parts of your life or, yeah. you know, encouraged and supported. The third group I want to ask you about has a, a profoundly different title, and it's it's called Suck It Suicide, right? Um, say it loud, say it proud. <laughs> suck, suck It Suicide! suicide. Oh, I consider, <laughs> like, uh, is it Steve Austin, the wrestler that just kind of did that, like, yes. cross-handed, like, Ah, like right across his crotch. That was exactly what Katie Hardy, our founder, CEO, one of my closest best friends, yeah. thought of. Because she's really? just 12 years old at heart. Uh-huh. And, you know, if, if suicide was a thing, if it was a person, what would you say to it? You'd say, suck it. <laughs> it's not for everybody. I will say that to anybody and anyone that has a question or care about it. But it does bring out conversations and you know care to people who are not going to you know respond to the butterflies and soft palette colors of you know kind of the marketing that we we look towards um in this kind of hopeful helpful space yeah um you know we have tattoo artists and 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 people who are in the kind of the non-mainstream community that are that are helping us out and and creating this this brand for us and katie has done a great job of making those connections and has an eye for that that look and that image that we want and that was the impetus for the nonprofit that is over suck at suicide six feet over um she saw a lack in her community 
you know, the, again, the non-mainstream kind of punk rock art scene uh, of Detroit. And she experienced a number of suicides, including the, the loss of her mother um, at a young age and a number of friends, and that people weren't prepared and they didn't have the finances available. So that was really the the original intent for Suck at Suicide was fundraising to give proper burials to the people she loves most. And that is such a hardship for so many people out in our community. So Six Feet Over is the larger organization and Suck at Suicide is really kind of our our, our baby and our, our pride and joy of the merchandise and the information and showing up. Um, Katie shows up um, out in our community and, and beyond. She does the tabling events, she, she can crisis counsel individuals, she can provide education and her, her story to, to others um, and bring in the, the funding that goes back and serves our mission for Six Feet Over, which is supporting families after a loss of suicide by providing funds for funerals, memorials, burials, cleanup, and um, some time off work. And that's not a service that we have found um, yet in the country. Wow. So it is, we've served about 30 families now. And each year the need has grown more and more as money go, gets less and less in the pockets of, of individuals and, and, you know, the, the insurance plans and, and, you know, the end of life care and whatnot um, goes down. We have, we served 10 families last year. And I think we, the average was about $4,500 to cover any number of those services that were listed. And, and those aren't, those aren't the things that you're, that you're considering when your person dies tragically, suddenly awful in your house or, you know, wherever they died. It's, those aren't the, the thoughts that you're having. You're, you often just go into survival mode yeah. Um, and you need that extra, that extra support and care and kind of alleviate some of that financial burden that comes with suicide. I, I kind of appreciate the aggressive approach that, that the title takes because suicide has been a whisper word for a long time. Yeah. Cancer used to be a whisper word. Mm-hmm. Uh, HIV used to be a whisper word. And now we don't approach those, uh, those illnesses or setbacks with the same shame yeah and we need to get there more with suicide and I think that to allow people to just have the raw emotions that that come along with losing someone is totally justified yeah that's that's great like give people a platform to just be who they are and grieve and experience those raw emotions yeah I have just a couple more questions for you the first is what does crisis mean to you Crisis means, what does crisis mean to me? It overwhelms the system. When your system is overwhelmed and you don't know how to cope, that's crisis. And how individuals define that for themselves is up to them. For me, I think one of my last crises was probably one of my children who was hurt. I cannot handle when my children, I have two boys, I cannot handle when they bash their head into a wall or fall or scrape a knee or, you know, are bleeding profusely somewhere. It, it sends me into a crisis. And my husband steps up and is like, what is wrong with you? You deal with this work 
You cannot handle your child <laughs> bleeding. It is a head wound. It is. It bleeds profusely. It'll be okay. Because I like, I'll, I'll, I was about to swoop up my child at one point and just take him to the ER. And he had a scratch, like a Band-Aid would uh-huh. really help that. Um, but, you know, th- those are the, you know, the, the physical crisis that, exper- that I experienced. But I've had a number of crises in my life. You know, I, I lost my best friend to suicide. I watched my mom fight heartily with um, cancer three times and, and finally succumbing to pancreatic cancer. And that sent me into crisis of just, I don't know what to do and I can't deal with this. Or just, I don't know if I want to go back to school. Like, thinking of going to school, you know, I associate it with this traumatic time in my life when I was so young that just even considering signing up for classes and and going to class sent me into being completely overwhelmed and overloaded. The benefit that I have had is, is knowing that I have people that have my back, that I have purposefully sought that out for myself and I use that support and get replenished by the people that I've connected with and I'm generally a pretty private person so letting people in just I think by nature by losing my best friend at such a young age I'm, I'm pretty private but I know that I have people that will be there for me and I purposely sought that out for myself and I think that's so important for others to do for themselves. And it's not easy. It's not easy to do. But finding others who have the same interests and care and heart as you do. My mother told me once that if you find two two best friends, you have all the people in the world that you need. And she was really right about that. And I have hundreds. I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that I have hundreds now. What frustrates you or disappoints you about the behavioral health crisis system right now? I think there has been so much growth and progress, and yet there is still kind of a a resting on our laurels and not allowing ourselves to grow and change in the ways that our communities now demand and need us to do you know you I heard you speak earlier about public versus private health insurance and those with Medicaid often have um, more access to mental health services in particular there it's kind of been built within and those in the private sector and with private health insurance don't often have that um, more comprehensive care or that that lead into to, to to mental health services so there's like this just disparities and yet on either side of the public private insurance we haven't done a great job of communicating what services we are providing how people can access them when they show up at the front door who's going to greet them and what's going to take place next and that's a hard conversation to have because it looks it can look and feel differently for each person like some people need you know just peer support some people need to to see a psychiatrist a psychologist and then you know you get into those subgroups of these each individuals that are involved in the care of an of individuals in crisis or mental health needs or trauma experiences that they're not as well informed as they need to be and they're not 
seeking out and, and adapting and changing to the, the times and the research that is out there. If you are working in an area, you should constantly be learning. You should constantly be doing your research, connecting with others in the field, showing up at conferences, presenting at conferences, and seeking out those, those growth opportunities to challenge the ideals that you have and to meet your people where they are at. My last question for you is who inspires you to be better at what you do? Maybe it's a better crisis worker or advocate or a better spouse or a better um, mom or just a better person. Like who, who, who inspires you? Dr. Bill Schmitz Foreman. (laughs) Jeez. I'm going to have to edit that. (laughs) You say it too fast to edit, I'm afraid. (laughs) I love them. Um, No, I mean, a number of people come to mind. Most importantly, I think my family has um, helped inspire me. They've supported me and they've put up with me in my chaotic schedules. I, you know, I work in the crisis services world, so I have worked at odd hours. I... You know, I seek out opportunities and I go out on trips that don't usually include them and they are there for me. Um, And my spouse, my husband, really does show up for me. Marriage is not an easy task. Um, I don't think it is for anybody. And, you know, we, we are each individuals with very different interests and, you know, career fields and different opportunities. He has done a really great job in supporting me, and I, and I hope he feels like I've done a great job in supporting him and, and his ventures and what he's passionate about. And he shows up for, for me and my children, um, our children, to, to make sure that everything's taken care of on the, on the home front when I leave. Because when, you know, when I'm packing up to go, I'm like, all right, this is what you're doing this day, and this is who's doing this. And he's like, I, I've been here before. You'll yeah. be okay. When mom leaves, I mean, that's, it's a little different. Right? And I'm just like... But then I go and I'm good and I know that they're taken care of. But in this work, I mean, Dr. Bill Schmitz has been a great inspiration. And he's, he's one, of, one of those, um, those professionals that shows up. Um, and he, he practices what he preaches. And he, he does challenge himself to learn more and to grow more and to make those connections in this work. Dr. April Foreman, Tony Wood that founded SPSM. Bart Andrews was one of the worst, one of the worst. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not cutting that out. (laughs) Was one of the first and worst. I love that guy. Um, One of the first crisis center folk that I really met and got to know and was like, oh, you're doing this work out out in the, where, where do you work? Uh, He's out in St. Louis. And he was so receptive and, and warm and welcoming. And, and he, he is one of those people that keeps learning. And then, you know, that grows out even further with Desiree Stage from the Live Through This Project. Mm-hmm. Jess Stolman Rainey is doing incredible work with the Rocky, Rocky um, Mountain, Crisis, Rocky Mountain Partners. Crisis Partners. Thank you. And um, it just keeps growing out further. Laura Meyer and, and Travis Atkinson oh, from TWT Solutions. <laughs> um, and I, I, Jerry Reed at, um, from the mm-hmm. SPRC and mm-hmm. locally Karen Marshall. I think I found Karen Marshall on LinkedIn and I was like, there's a person doing this work. I'm going to meet her. She's and cool. I messaged her and we, we had a conversation. We were able to, to do some really cool work with the American uh, Indian Health uh, Family Services down in Detroit with a crisis center. 
So, you know, following up and making those connections and, and just reaching out to people that are in your field. And I mean, I did a lot of social media stalking, to be honest. And I, I met people. I think that's called research. Uh, yeah, we can call it research. Okay. Janet Schnell was like, we met at an Ohio conference. I was like, no, we were we were Facebook <laughs> friends. We <laughs> Facebook stalked each other. And every time I see her, she's like, we went to that Ohio conference. I was uh, like, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. <laughs> no, we didn't, Janet, Janet Schnell, but, but I love it. I oh. love her. And meeting people face-to-face that are doing this work, that are so passionate, um, is it fills my bucket as you describe all those people, like there's an energy to, to this, to the, the work, mm-hmm. there's an energy that the people are contributing to the work and it, and yeah. there's so much of it that, that feels pure and, and authentic. Yeah. And I hope that more people get, get to feel that and get to experience that I um, hope so. through whatever, whatever means it is, but that they don't feel alone. Yeah. Amelia, I'm so glad you joined me today. I'm so glad you're here on this earth. Oh, and, thank you. Me um, too. Keep keep doing what you're doing because the world needs more of more of you. I am off to exciting new places, new old familiar places, but really exciting places. I'm I'm looking forward to the, to the future. It sounds like the beginning of like a musical. I think is the way you the word you just use those Man, words. I love life to be a musical. My husband's like I'm not gonna watch that. I just I went to Jagged Little Pill last week. Ooh. Was it an Alanis Morissette musical? Yes, it was an Alanis what? Morissette musical, and it was amazing. Wow. It was very on brand for what I do, and it was incredibly inspiring. They they knocked it out of the park. It is a Broadway hit. Wow. And I right got a on. great seat. Thank you, TKTS in Times Square, you terrifying <laughs> place. <laughs> All right, Amelia, keep it real. We'll have you back again sometime. Thank you. That is Amelia Leto. To learn more about AAS, visit suicidology.org. To learn more about Kevin's song, visit kevinsong.org. Or to learn more about Suck It Suicide, visit 6ftover.org. You can follow Amelia on Twitter at atoes84. And lastly, if you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.